love the nasty milk hiding in the back of the fridge. Oh That's so man, weird. it's such a bad <laughs> gag for blindness, right? It's that whole that whole sequence is like oh. Is it worse than the mole on the nurse's face? I love though? the mole. I love everything about the weird eye surgery. It's uh. just such a <laughs> bananas suck Peter section Stamare, of this movie. Just everything. It's yeah. the you know, there are a few moments in here. Um, that's one of them, but there are a couple of others uh, where I, I really wish Spielberg would come out and just hit one more horror movie like pure horror. Oh, yeah. Because he's got it in him. You know, uh, yeah. he's got, he knows those tricks. He knows all the things to do. The high strangeness of the yoga group that's also like contortionist. Yeah, right. <laughs> Are yeah. you okay? Yeah. <laughs> that's a good bit. Good. Dustin, I do have to, to ask though, because you'd mentioned right before we started recording that you'd had LASIK at a younger age. I imagine, was this was this like what your LASIK surgery was like? <laughs> it was absolutely, completely unlike. It was, it was more like cooking the eyelid or the eye yeah. lens, right? Yeah. And, and so you smell Ooh. roughly a burnt hair smell Ooh. while experiencing. Mm. Yeah, how was the sandwich though? Did you did you grab the right one? Um, I did not have to be bandaged for twelve hours or I okay. go blind. So fortunately, did you, you didn't have to. They give you like special glasses. They did not. They gave me Vicodin though for the pain, and I had church the next morning. A good time was had by all. Yeah. Let's, just, <laughs> let's just say can that. I imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who replaced communion with goldfish and Kool Aid, but I'm on board. <laughs> well, hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast. We gather around a table, we discuss films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. Before we do introductions, though, I must identify a guest host. Welcome, Mr. Caleb Masters. Glad to have you on, man. Hey, thanks so much, Dustin. Before we get started, just can we all just sit here for a second? And you know what I hear, Dustin? What do you hear? Nothing. There's no footsteps up the stairs, no jet out the window, <laughs> no clickety-clack of guests who don't know how to control their pins. Do you know why you can't hear that, Dustin? Why is that? Because right now, the precogs can't hear a podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Very good. It's a positive future if there are no more podcasts. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a net gain for just, all yeah, humanity. Just like uh, uh, The celebrity bubble just blew it all away <laughs> once it popped. It just took like, the whole empire down with yeah, it. Yeah, as, as murder impacts the metaphysics of our reality such that the precogs have to see What's a podcast. What's the big diagram yeah. of podcast to murder? Well, yeah, I mean, Joe Rogan's been in the news a lot lately. Ooh. I don't know if they've been following. So. Oh, my goodness. Zing. Well, just in case, just so you know, we do discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. We are continuing with our science fiction marathon of anti-trash, concluding it with Minority Report, uh, directed by the great Steven Spielberg, starring Tom Cruise. I am still Dustin. I am still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And he's Caleb, and we're glad to be here talking to you all about Minority Report. In case you're tuning in for the very first time, we want to let you know, dear listener, this is a review, not a review show, not a review show at all, sorry. It's an analysis show, and that does mean we're going to spoil the end of this film, but we're going to avoid that for the first part of the show. It looks like this. We start out with a synopsis, then we move into thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which are spoiler light. We move into gentle spoilers in the realm of expanding the syllabus, and finally, when we get down to business, you'll have music to let you know that all Spoiler bets are off. You have been warned. So with that, without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, delight us with another synopsis, please. Based on a story by Philip K. Dick, Minority Report takes us to Washington, D.C. in the year 2054. Policing has evolved to include a pre-crime division thanks to the foreknowledge of the precogs who examine coming events. But when his name pops and presents him as a killer, John Anderton must go on the run to prove it's not true. Dun, dun, dun. Is it fate or is it Memorex? Or whatever. Is Memorex? Is That's that... the second Memorex reference I've heard in a week. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we're all in our 80s, right? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that one went right <laughs> over my head. 
Is 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 wow. it real or is it real or is it Memorex? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I got nothing for you, oh, man. Sorry. Man, okay, fine. Okay, uh, we're gonna do thumbs up, thumbs down <laughs> reviews now, and as is our pattern. Although we typically throw first to our guest host, we've made a new pattern of making sure the Virgin viewer goes first. And this week, it's me. Yeah, you're the only one I ain't seen this. this I, joint. I, I have not seen. It. I thought I had. I've seen images of it. Uh, it may have played in a room that I've been in at some point in my life. Where were you when this came out? Two thousand two. Were you two thousand and two? Because this is well beyond your theater days. Yeah. So. Uh, Arkansas. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they don't watch movies in Arkansas. Yeah. That's what I've heard. <laughs> anyway. They haven't made it. They're still at the Nickelodeon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, thus and therefore, here comes the film and my experience right down the pike. It's a lot of fun. I love how film noir it is. Mm-hmm. I like the detective aspects to it. I love how much it is uh, playing with the realm of surrealism and Louis Bunuel, uh eye trauma with references both to uh, Unchian Andalou and uh, Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a lot of fun to me. The high strangeness of various uh, moments where contortionist slash yoga instructors Tim Blake Nelson then Tim Blake Nelson and also the most wacky of all eye surgeons in the fly-by-night surgery place with references to Blade Runner going alongside that I think as well Uh, and so yeah it's it's a whole lot of fun it does get a bit plotty the last it's almost like a fourth act third act Mm -hmm. uh, there towards the end and so it does sort of get a little uh, long in the tooth there Um, and Arthur and I were having a discussion uh, at work about how whether or not there's any fat to this movie. I don't know that that's fat, but there's a way in which those moments could have been combined into a, a I think, a more streamlined yeah. third act uh, for that. But um, Tom Cruise is Tom Cruising at his um, Tom Cruising speed. and uh, Everybody f- runs, especially Tom. And you know what? That's fine. Um, I like that. I like its twist, and it works for me on most of the levels. So I dig it. I think I like Minority Report very much. So with that... He's going to put it in the trash. He is. I'll take that action. Just, just because yeah. I like it doesn't mean it goes on the show. Exactly. No, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, right? And I mean, I like a lot of movies that don't go on the show. I should have when, when you said it's a fun time. I should have known no. right there. The fun time is probably a good indicator. <laughs> uh, Do we all have code words. Yeah, the, Justin's most backhanded compliment is. I'm going to listen to the last 445 episodes to see if we all have clues. I'm uh, sure I have a tell. Yeah, yeah. there's something That's maybe the there, I and I, I'm, I'm making my mind up even now as to whether I will shelter trash it. It'll, it'll, hey, it'll you know depend what? a little bit on our conversation. I know exactly what you mean. I never I've come there. decided. Yeah. yeah. No. So with that, uh, Mr. Caleb Masters, guest host of the day, tell us your thoughts on Minority Report. Uh, well, firstly, thank you. I just want to reiterate. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about Minority Report. This is uh, we've uh, you guys got me hooked on the ye old letterbox back in the day. <laughs> and uh, when I signed up for letterbox, this was one of the movies I put up there because I was like, you know what movie I could just watch almost any time and it would feel fresh and new every time. Minority Report. Is it still in your top four? It is. Probably need to update it, but I would really have to to con- reconsider whether or not it would make it offer on. It's gotcha. pretty, cl- it's pretty close. Right on. I figured it, it was still. I know it holds uh, a lot of weight for you. This is it definitely like a top ten for you? You think? Def- yeah, yeah, definitely a top ten. Because, nice. because every time I rewatch it, I, I enjoy new things about it. Yeah. Or uh, just there's just it feels more relevant today than it did when it came out. There's just it's aging really, really well. So, so I, the targeted I, ads, especially. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, gonna, yeah. Yes. Um, we'll, we'll get to it, but also the the way that they were spot on about uh, 
where technology was going, but how it was realized was a little wonky. Yeah. It was clearly made before they knew smartphones were going yep. to exist. Yeah, the yep. updating newspaper is a nice touch that, yeah. like, is just so close so to being close. almost there. Yeah. 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 Uh, but with that said, uh, Minority Report, I really think this is an incredible marriage of uh, the heady sci-fi films of the 70s and 80s and 90s uh, to the, the marriage to audience-friendly blockbusters popularized by Spielberg. It still is in that weird transition. It comes out right after 9-11, but The Matrix was only three years before this. So there's this sort of like like the, the, a new wave of sci-fi is a cool blockbustery thing again. We're really into technology again. So it's got a lot of that going for it uh, with sort of like the heady Philip K. Dick influence. So it's smart. It's fun, flashy. Uh, and again, still feels like a Spielberg movie, even if it's one that we haven't experienced before. Dustin's already talked about Tom Cruise. I feel like this is him. It's not his best performance at this time, but I felt like he was pushing himself more in this film than probably he was in most of his films as an actor before this. Yeah, um, yeah. He's he's pained in this. There's yes. there is a like he a palpable sadness to him in this that I think really comes through. Mm-hmm. Well, like I like I think was it Magnolia was not too long. Before yeah, this, it's and, like three ninety nine, ninety eight. Yeah, so that was like that was the only movie when I was looking at his filmography. I was like, I think he's probably better in that film, but I feel like he's really swinging for the fences yeah. in this one. Yeah. Haunted Cruise is the, one of the best oh, cruises. So yeah. good. Uh, also, uh, this is the first film in which I remember uh, seeing Colin Farrell and being like, "This guy is awesome. I want to see him do more stuff." He'd been in other movies. He's been in other movies before this that are better. But Teenage Me saw this and was like, "This mm-hmm. guy is really cool," and I, I still think it's a really fun performance for him. Uh, and again, is. Dustin already iterated. I really love the genre building. It's got criminal justice. It's got fate versus free will. Uh, there's this terrifying future of technology. What does it mean? And there's there's just so much meat on the bone of what is essentially still a Spielberg blockbuster film. Uh, yeah, there's so much more to be said. Eight plus set pieces. I'm, I just love this movie. I'm going to shut up about it. Great film. <laughs> very good. Very good. Thank you very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you like Minority Report? Why or why not? Uh, you know what? I, I really do get a, a good, solid kick out of this movie. I, I think it's really interesting. Um, it's got a great cast. Uh, again, it really is a great Tom Cruise performance. I think uh, I didn't want to interrupt you, but uh, I love I love the dynamic that he and Tom Cruise or he and Colin Farrell share because mm. they play off of each other. I think so well. Yeah. Really do butt heads in a way that's believable. And there's like, I, I do want to see them fight, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the kind of odd play of chemistry, like typically want to see them hook up, but here I want to see them just beat each other. You know I mean? Yeah, absolutely. They, they really yeah. lean into that. Well, uh, Farrell's, I love Farrell. Uh, I think he's great here. The twink from the fed. Do you think Steven Spielberg knew what that meant? I yeah I don't know that he didn't. I, <laughs> he's, he's got an aide somewhere who's telling him things. That's, that was one of the first thoughts I had during that scene. Sorry. Um, but I, I think it does a really good job of bringing a lot of information to the screen. I watched this video that was uh, from script to screen thing, uh, referencing how it u- does exposition in a way that's not tedious or just bogging you down. Like we see a museum tour and we see, uh, I mean, the feral coming in obviously as a surrogate <laughs> helps us kind of get that, but including it in the drama between him and Cruz as well is really smart. Uh, when Cruz throws that ball across the thing, which is a really good Great sequence. Scene. Love it. The, the way they're able to really quickly like establish ideas and the yeah. rules without preaching at you yeah. anyway is, is great. And that, that great opening. I lo- that opening is fantastic. Yeah. Sets the uh, tone, sets the pace, sets the stakes. It's really clever. It's got all the cool screen pinching. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's so, an awesome opening. And, I mean, and we're going to talk about it, I'm sure, but I mean, the finger casting things, mm-hmm. that, I mean, 
Marvel has implemented time and time again in all of their MCU films, which is so cool. Cruz is so good at it. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know what to say. Yeah, Um, he's just like he just nails it. So yeah, but I think I agree with Dustin. I do think it's. I mean, it's a lot of movie. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. again, I don't know that I would cut anything. There are some things maybe, but it wouldn't factor out much. Uh, So I think I mean you just have to kind of prepare yourself that this is a long movie, and even in those moments of set piece, there's still a lot going on and a lot to kind of digest as you're going along. Uh, I think. One of my uh, one criticisms is uh, when uh, uh, Colin Farrell does the uh, I'm going to punch you <laughs> motion <laughs> in the yeah. auto factory. It's such <laughs> a choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Between that and the gum chewing, man. Yeah. yeah big choices. Uh, but uh, I mean, there are minor quibbles I have with this. I, you know, I don't it's not one of my favorite movies ever. I'm not huge into sci-fi, though, in general. But I, I think it's got a lot of fun stuff going on. I like the themes that it's playing with, um, how it's engaging with those. I, I think uh it's building. I mean, Philip K. Dick is obviously one of our most important writers uh, of the last hundred years, and so to see his influence here, and I think how Spielberg builds on that in a really interesting way. And I think when you parallel this with Ready Player One, it's a really interesting conversation to see where a filmmaker's at in his career and what he's dealing with and what he's looking at. And so I think that's a fun dynamic as well. But yeah, I, I think it's a solid movie. Um, and I, I'm surprised. I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that it's kind of an under the radar thing. But I know you're probably going to talk about that more later. So uh, yeah, it's it's a solid Spielberg entry that I don't mind watching again. Very cool, very cool. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Do you like Minority Report? Why or why not? I do. This movie's wacky. Uh, I'll reiterate yes. a lot of what's been said so far. I think, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Dustin. That those are the sort of surrealist, high strangeness moments are, are really what draws me to this movie, and I think keeps it from feeling too long in the tooth. Because you're, mm-hmm. you're both right. There are moments where you're like, oh, man, it's still going, huh? We oh god, we still have another hour. Oh well, okay. Mm-hmm. But it, it doesn't, you know, anytime you start to feel that way, I feel like it, as soon as you start to wonder, where's this going? The movie does manage to get its hooks right back yeah. into you. Yeah. Uh, I've never bothered that. I'm like, yeah, I have to be here another hour, but it's just like, oh, it's only been 40 minutes. Yeah. yeah. It, it kind of like lets plot happen at, at yeah. its, on its own terms in a way. But yeah, this, this movie's full of great set pieces. The, the highways are just like the visual of a uh, future highway. And mm-hmm. this is so cool. The uh, the factory car factory fight great the whole thing apparently that's an old Hitchcock idea mm-hmm. Hitchcock wanted to uh, do a, a action sequence at a car factory where the protagonist dro- drives off the the show floor or nice. whatever it's a good bit yeah it's yeah. great I love it it's, and it's the movie's full of great bits like that yeah. it's you know the spiders we we've talked about the eye scene but the spiders after that are great there's so many good chases in this that I think that lends so much propulsiveness to that this movie right the feeling that. There is always a constant clock ticking. There are people at your heels. You have to move. And it really does keep the, the plot moving. Even an eyeball chase scene. Oh, my God. So funny. So funny. <laughs> and one, one thing I'd add there, too, is it's, it's always running. But what's wild is uh, the, the film has to frequently justify to you as the audience. Why does not he just skip town? until the yeah. murder's done but it does a great job at like reminding you of like no no he's got a reason to work this out it, it makes it make sense that he really wants to know what's going on like they do a yeah. good job of selling the idea that he can't let this go and just prove that he's not going to do mm-hmm. it and just he has to prove that he wouldn't do it not that he's not going to mm-hmm. just a very interesting sort of plotting um we haven't talked about samantha morton yet who i think is so good like has to do such a specific performance yeah. in this and i think is great the run the run scream come on mm-hmm. oh this movie's got fulls this movie's lit really weird too but in a way that i like this mm-hmm. like very soft white light that is like it's it's star trek in a way that makes the the, the clean crisp future feel too clean in, in a way and that, that, 
that's achieved with that soft lighting, I think. It mm-hmm. kind of lets you know, as we learn throughout the film, that things are not quite as shiny as they appear on the surface. I think the movie does a good job of evoking that with, with its lighting. Um, yeah, it's a great movie. Uh, I, I think it really does hold up as far as uh, an exciting sci-fi action-adventure film. Uh, while, you know, again, it, it looks still looks great. Uh, it's It moves at a pretty good clip. Uh, you know, those set pieces are, yeah, it's, again, it's Spielberg working at the top of his game, uh, mm-hmm. even if it is... Uh, Again, yeah, as as we've alluded to, and maybe Caleb will mention, it is sort of feels like a lost entry for him. Uh, you know, it, it is it's kind of a very specific moment in his career uh, that he gets a little bit, I don't know, darker. And I, I, I this is one of those films that I think he he really equips himself well in doing that. Um, I will say though, I think it's got too much of a super mega happy ending thing. You know, like the the Wayne's World super mega happy ending. Uh, is what I was thinking of because really it, every, it all does just work out totally for everybody in a way that's like, I don't know, doesn't really feel true to the movie that came before it. Uh, and again, you know, that's sort of a, a common Spielberg quibble, I suppose. I don't I don't usually feel that way about his movies, though. Well, I want to come back to that later in analysis because I do have a question because of something I read online. So mm. I think we're going to come back to that. I would love to, yeah. Um, Foreshadowing. Yeah. There's there's good emotion in this film, though, right? Like, without spoiling too much, there's a pivotal confrontation towards the end of the second act that just works so well. It's just so incredible. Um, and, and, you know, Max van Sydow is Sydowing all over the place. We've always, already talked about Farrell. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with all the performances in this movie, especially Tim Blake Nelson and... Uh, which Scars? That's not Peter Scars. Stormare. Stormare. There we go. Thank you. Yeah, Peter Stormare and, and Nelson are like... I, I hope they were just... Uh, told to do whatever they wanted to do uh, yes because they are both yeah taking a big old bite of ham i love it yeah this movie's fun very good very good thank you very much for that mr dalton stewart there you go there are our thoughts are generally pro regarding the film minority report and we now move to the next section of the show in which we expand the syllabus dalton can you explain what expanding the syllabus is all about i sure can dustin expanding the syllabus is a part of the show where we deliver on the promise of this show we are going to talk about the film study the film studies we're gonna talk about the movies you would never discuss in a film studies course uh and we're gonna talk about them like you would in a film studies course uh that's sort of our our whole deal here and this is the part of the show where we deliver how would we discuss minority report what would we discuss about minority report what kind of class would it even be is it a film studies class or is it something a little bit different that's what we are uh, tasked with delivering to you the listener very good, very good. Thank you very much for that. A succinct definition. Well Happy done. to do it. Well done. <laughs> so we're going to go to our guest first. Um, Caleb, what would be the syllabus you would use with a film like Minority Report? Okay, so I'm going to try to keep this as brief as possible because I had a lot of ideas and tried to compress it as much <laughs> as possible. So I'm just going to say this disclaimer. I, let's be honest. There is nothing I'm going to say in the next three to five minutes. That has not already been said thoroughly or covered by their film critics or scholars or filmmakers on the Internet because this is Spielberg we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, no one's a few filmmakers other than maybe like a Hitchcock or a Kubrick have been studied in the same way while he's still making movies. Sure. Uh, so with that in mind, I want to talk about one of the things that's always really drawn me to this film, uh, which is how it stands in Spielberg's oeuvre. And I really think, again, we haven't seen the end of Spielberg's career yet, but this 
the early aughts, I would say all the way up until probably Bridge of Spies in 2015 is a really interesting chapter for him because he gets really dark right after uh, 9-11. Yeah, the uh, sort of late DreamWorks years. Yes, yeah, know. exactly. Uh, I mean, again, so, so just to, to step back here, I mean, we all, every, at, by this point, 2000, uh, yeah, 2002, uh, everyone already knows him. He's the, the man, the myth, the beard. He's reshaped the industry from the 70s and 80s, uh, like classics like Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., Jurassic Park, so on and so forth. Uh, and he brought a real energy and humanity to the stories that, uh, at the time, were probably considered good trash of their day. Uh, I'm not going to say he, he didn't make some, take some tremendous risks and push himself as a director before Minority Report of the early aughts, because he had films like The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, Amistad. Uh, and then, of course, he hit you know Oscar Gold with Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. So... I would. I do want to make the case, though, that his most intriguing chapter uh, is the the early aughts. So I'm going to say I'm throwing this out there. Twenty, two, sorry, 2001 through 2015. Uh, so mm-hmm. again, this is a very long winded way to justify my premise here. Uh, but he kicks off the decade with AI artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. which is actually a tribute to Stanley Kubrick, and then he follows it up immediately with Minority Report. And there's a lot of crossover yeah. thematically, mm-hmm. visually, sure. influences, mm-hmm. uh, and then. Tone, after th- too. Oh, They're tone. just both weird movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, then he immediately goes into he, he takes a lighter a lighter beat with Cash Me If You Can. Uh, he hits Terminal, Munich. Uh, there's a whole bunch of movies. Uh, but again, I would argue maybe uh, the best Tom Hanks uh, collaboration would be Bridge of Spies, which yeah. sort of bookmarks my mind. What like was mm-hmm. the the transition to another chapter here? He sort of pivots back to optimism a little bit with that he one, does. right? Because Munich does. is like a grim, dark Spielberg. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like early odds, he gets real dark, and then World of the Worlds is right after Munich too, yeah. which is also happy ending but dark movie. Yeah, so, sure. Mm-hmm. What does the syllabus look like? So I already mentioned Spielberg's respect for Kubrick, so I'd like to start the class with a choice for students: either 2001: A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, or Doctor Strangelove, so they can learn more about the famed auteur who, in many ways, paved the way for Spielberg. Uh, especially, he he really kind of wrote the book on how to create a, a heady sci-fi film, uh, so that Spielberg could pick it up and say, hey, this is great. How can I make this accessible to like everyone or at least a wider audience? Uh, and then I'd have the class go into a quintessential Spielberg film. So I chose Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's a really great film that outlines his general creative decisions, his directorial style, and, and usually a, a specific type of directorial framework that he perfected with that film, at least in terms of blockbusters. Uh, to sum it up, it's odd wonder. It's the formation of a family born through tragedy. It's the terror of uncertainty and suspense. And of course, it's the roller coaster adrenaline rush of surviving dinosaurs attacking. Again, perfected of his formula at that point. Mm-hmm. I I'd then have them go look at another film. I went. There's a couple different options I came up with here. I'm going to keep it short. But another film that I think you could uh, compare to Spielberg in the early aughts, uh, which is Casino Royale. Why? Because much like Spielberg from 2001 to 2015, uh, Casino Royale is a historically more tongue-in-cheek, cheesy, blockbuster type of fun icon film uh, that decides to get darker or, quote-unquote, more real as a reaction to 9-11, you know, 24s, you know, all that that stuff that we're looking at right after 9-11. you could also could have said Batman Begins, but I really want to avoid recommending superheroes unless we're talking about superheroes at this point. So uh, the next piece is a trilogy of films. So this is outlining Spielberg's views and journey on the state of the world immediately after 9-11, because this actually sets the darker tone that you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, Dalton. So we start with Minority Report. It's the first. 
It wrestles with the question, is there enough – is there really uh, enough substantial evidence to arrest someone? Is, is it really ethical to do so even if they've not done anything wrong? And again, you can go look at the conversations we're having at the time about who's a terrorist. Can we detain them? What rights are okay to forfeit in the name of safety? Uh, and then after my – Yeah, report, Randy Weaver's dog has uh, something to say about that. Oh, yeah. Fair. <laughs> uh, and again, I think you go right from – Minority Report to his very next film, which is Munich, which we already talked about. Downer film. Yeah. Super bleak. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, it's way less flashy and action-oriented, and it's a historical drama that's covering the Israeli government's uh, secret retaliation against the Palestine Liberation Organization after the Munich massacre of uh, the at the 1972 Olympics. But the themes are similar. It's sort of a follow-up. So you're, you're talking about the ethics of justice. Uh, we talked about you, you cover that you touch on that minority report in this film you're looking more at like what is the what is when is justice right right mm-hmm. is the violence is 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 the is justice okay is violence okay uh if we get justice and what does the cost of that look like on this human psyche on the psyche of a country and in the final entry you go to which immediately follows that war of the worlds where Spielberg is turning his attention away from the politics and the philosophical implications of nine 11 and looking uh, at the general public. What was their reaction to the terror? Uh, he draws a lot of parallels to the fear of a, another attack that Americans are feeling at the time. Um, lastly, I'm going to wrap up the semester with Spielberg's cold war uh, drama, which I already mentioned bridge of spies, a film that captures many of the loftier themes and darker tones of visual styles. The director experimented with earlier in the two thousands. Uh, but he, like you said, Dalton, he brings it back to optimistic. Uh, I mean, the, the, for those of you who haven't seen bridge of spies and a lot of people haven't, uh, the film is a story about, uh, a lawyer played by Tom Hanks, who is defending an alleged Soviet spy uh, as a formality put on the government. But the movie is really about how Donovan, or the Tom Hanks character rather, how he risks it all to go above and beyond to prove that the enemy is not as guilty as presumed by the public and the U.S. government. Again, kind of optimistic. Humans can be good. It's not always dicey. We should put our faith in fellow Middle angel, angels of our nature, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think from there, you actually, again, it's too soon to say for sure, but it really feels like after that, we are starting to enter the quote-unquote sunset chapter where we're seeing a lot more of a sentimental approach or reflection mm-hmm. on his own career. Mm-hmm. Uh, his next film certainly seems to be a, it's an autobiographical film about his childhood in Arizona. So it seems like that's where we're at. Can't say for sure. Ridley Scott's still out there in his 80s making movies like crazy, so maybe Spielberg will keep it up, but it feels like uh, a, another shift. Um, I do want to throw two pieces of extra credit out there because I've only talked about movies. If you want to learn more about Steven Spielberg uh, slash films, Chris Evangelista has a very in-depth podcast called 21st Century Spielberg where he goes really in-depth on each one of the films uh, made uh, by Spielberg in the 21st century. Um, And then lastly, students can watch Ready Player One, again, extra credit. uh, And I really want to see what they come back with, you know. It's a weird movie because only I feel like Spielberg only made it because he had the network to get all that IP under one umbrella. But it's really weird because he's making a movie about the stuff that he's built while simultaneously being like, but yeah, it doesn't really matter. So I don't know. I would be really interested to see what people like what students, especially like, you know, younger people that I come back, uh, take away from that film. All right. Is the lengthy. uh, Rubric, or sorry, I keep saying rubric. That is uh, the class I would teach. Very good, very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what syllabus bring you? 
Uh, uh, this is a dry run here. Uh, this is a sci-fi uh, through the ages course that I actually hope to be teaching in the fall. Uh, so I think we'll just kind of run through some of these picks uh, as I think, uh, you know, sci-fi, um, like I mentioned, I, I appreciate sci-fi more, but I probably love it. I, I think uh, of the genres, uh, the ability these writers and, and thinkers and creators have had to foresee where we would go as a society, even if it does kind of slightly miss the mark, you know, the the switching newspaper rather than the smartphone mm-hmm. like those ideas i think are interesting um and so just you know time and time again to have these almost kind of prophetic and self-fulfilling prophetic moments is i don't know it's very interesting and in how that has just progressed us forward in, in many ways and so i think that's where we're gonna go uh so i'm gonna start uh here with johannes kepler and somnium in 1604 uh and so some of the people look at this as one of the earliest sci-fi stories so 1604 um, obviously we've discovered a new world at that point in, mm-hmm. in the, uh, other continents. Um, and so I think this is a story about travelers going to the moon and that idea of continuing to explore uncharted territories, which I think throughout human history has always been a relevant and important theme to see, you know, what can we do next? How far can we reach? Um, and really kind of burst ideas that, you know, 300 and something years later we would, finally fulfill uh when we do land on the moon uh and so i think that's a fun place to start then we're going to move into obviously mary shelley's frankenstein who many look to as the first science fiction uh novelist uh with that book uh and so obviously talk about that and the number of ways you can look at it uh as a fun tale at a ghost story convention or a uh uh, look at the industrial revolution as well so Mm -hmm. and and just the vast amount of themes uh that are also rampant there it's working on so many levels yeah i mean yeah. yeah You mind There's it. a reason it's classic, yeah. for sure. Uh, it has definitely stood the test of time. Uh, uh, we've got to hit Jules Verne. We've got to H- hit H.G. Wells, obviously. So we'll look at A Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, War of the Worlds. I think uh, two men who we look at as kind of the um, modern fathers of science fiction in the late 1860s. Um, so that's where we'll jump to next. Uh, beyond that, uh, we're going to kind of tie into some of the theological themes of Minority Report. So we're going to go with C.S. Lewis. Uh, we're going to do Out of the Silent Planet, the first of his space trilogy there, um, to really kind of start moving into some of those theological ideas and maybe some more heady ideas and more modern uh, science fiction other than just Outsiders Dangerous. Um, next, uh, I think we're going to do Isaac Asimov. We'll talk Foundation, maybe look at some clips from the new Apple TV series. I haven't watched it, but... It's pretty good. Um, obviously, it's pretty. another of the... <laughs> Uh, notable Mount Rushmore figures, Asimov there. Big time. Um, I, I want to go into some atro- Afrofuturism, and we're going to talk Octavia Butler uh, and Bloodchild um, and other stories uh, to look at that and, and kind of dealing with those uh, urban themes uh, as they enter into sci-fi as well. Uh, we might also read the W.E.B. Du Bois uh, short story, uh, The Comet, uh, which mm. is a really interesting little uh, read as well and pretty simple, um, but dealing with race and class amidst the apocalypse. Um, which is a really fun uh, thing to look at. Um, probably going to jump ahead to kind of continue the theological element. Uh, we're going to look at the Sparrow uh, from Mary Russell, uh, which is about a group of Jesuit priests who go to Mars on a missions trip. Um, <laughs> Love it. From Wild. a lapsed Catholic atheist, I think. So uh, she uh, Great. she's a lapsed, I think a lapsed Catholic, if not atheist, uh, but she writes a story to discuss... Uh, Missionaries going into foreign cultures Love and that. what that brings with it. And then uh, we'll probably end, 
with this class on the book, Ready Player One, to discuss where we are with sci-fi, where we are with pop culture, where we are with society and generations and what we're thinking and how we engage with media. And then there are going to be some additional viewings and clips from Star Trek, Twilight Zone, 2001, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, et al., The Day of the Earth is still et al., uh, Jurassic Park, and probably Minority Report. After watching this, I think this could really stand into this class mm. easily to discuss. And Philip K. Dick not being on the reading list, I, I think having experience with that is important. So, And this one's a pretty palatable one to introduce. Uh, yeah. As far as being you know, PG-13, it, where I work, that would be kind Better of the key Blade role. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or Total Recall. <laughs> or Total Recall. <laughs> or yeah. Scanner Darkly. Yeah. 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 So this one's a little easier to kind of you know, slide Palatable. through the cracks. Yeah. Um, but that's what I would do with it. It's just a through the ages sci-fi course. Very Hopefully cool. coming this fall. Very cool. Very okay. cool. I'm excited about the course. I'm going to audit it, I hope. I was about to say, can I audit that class? Yeah. yeah. That sounds fun. <laughs> So thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what syllabus do you bring? Well, we're going to be talking about crime and punishment and speculative fiction. Excellent. Uh, it's going to be more of a, a philosophy class than a, an actual film studies course. I, I think w there's going to be a whole unit on Philip K. Dick because he is, as Arthur uh, has alluded to already, such a, a seminal figure in science fiction, American science fiction, but it is also huge in dealing with law enforcement, dealing with crime and, and social issues uh, within science fiction. It's so much is bread and butter and so much of the... So much of influential uh, sci-fi filmmaking over the last, you know, 30, 40 years is based on his work. So we definitely look at uh, the original source materials and adaptations of A Scanner Darkly, uh, Blade Runner, and of course, Minority Report, this week's movie. And we look at the, the different ideas presented there, get into some of Philip K. Dick's kookier theories, too, just for fun. Uh, but we definitely look at, you know, sort of the implications of his work uh, and of these these stories, you know, who's being criminalized, what's being criminalized. It's often personhood and who, who gets to have personhood and who gets to decide what personhood looks like, I think, is something that is dealt with in all those stories. And, uh, you know, uh, individual responsibility and choice and, and how those things actually manifest in the real world, I think, are, are dealt with really effectively, especially in a scanner darkly, right? It's it's using all of this this predestination stuff in Minority Report and looking at it through a, an addiction lens, uh, which I think is really compelling. We also, of course, look at, you know, some of the, the really notable and famous uh, police dystopias like Dread, uh, the 2012 film, and its source material, of course, and uh, RoboCop from uh, the, the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, and I'm blanking on his name because, of course, Paul I Verhoeven? am. Paul Verhoeven. Thank you. Yeah, it's one of those days. Sometimes you can't think of Verhoeven's name but you can always think of his Im images and that's mm -hmm. important <laughs> i think about it all the time uh it's a weird movie and again at robocop also dealing with personhood dealing with these questions of how do we enforce the law and whose interests are served uh, in law enforcement. I, I think those questions are dealt with really interestingly. Uh, we, of course, look at uh, Brazil and the Clockwork Orange films that deal with sort of uh, hyper dystopias and, and how is a person who does not conform to the society they live in, how are they dealt with by that society? Uh, and again, I, I think we would look at all of these and we would look at contemporary issues in policing uh, dealing with, and again, try to look at these overlaps between speculative fiction and our real world, uh, and, and try to find some, some answers there, maybe from our, our science fiction thinkers. And, uh, uh, of course we, again, we look at philosophies on policing, both from a criminal justice perspective and just from an ethics and morality perspective. I think there's a lot of work that could be done in mm -hmm. such a class. Dustin. Yes, sir. You're the last, you're up to bat. I am. What indeed. do you got? I do not have a film studies course. I have a theology course wow. in which one is doing theology proper, talking about the nature of God and what is omniscience and more specifically 
divine foreknowledge. Uh, one of the great uh, keys in this film is that there is a foreknowledge on the part of the precogs, and once that is uh, foreknowledge is known, there is no altering it. And what we come to find out is that by knowing what the precognitional knowledge is, then there enters an element of free will, which is interesting because in theological debates, the question of foreknowledge and free will are very much intertwined, but usually they are answered by there must not be divine foreknowledge in order for free will to be possible. And so, first of all, giving examples of EDF, which is exhaustive definite foreknowledge. I'm giving you a little school primer here as we go forward. Uh, Looking at John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, which is the first place to begin here. Uh, Obviously, in a theology course, scripture is going to be really important as part of those formulations, but Calvin does get into a little bit of the weeds about the idea of predestination itself and the nature of God, and therefore the lack of free will based on the existence of predestination. From then, I would move on into... uh, uh, Kirk McGregor's book, Luis de la Molina, which provo- pro- proposes the idea of middle knowledge. Middle knowledge is that God knows what will happen, but God also knows what would happen. That God, in God's freedom, can choose to act in certain ways to move the pieces of the checkerboard forward. And so God knows and suggests that these are the things that would happen if God were to act in a certain way or if persons were to make these certain choices. And so it leaves an open possibility of freedom of the will that God sort of works in some ways, again, in eternity past based on definite foreknowledge still, but it's a middle knowledge of not only what will happen, but also what would happen. Then we move I have, on. I have such a big question, and maybe we'll wait till we get to analysis, well, but may- you, you've just sparked something that I got to know about. Well, we, I don't know the answers probably, but we'll see what we can do. Okay. Uh, moving on then into what's called open theology or open and relational theology, sometimes the openness of God. Uh, the book is The Openness of God, edited by Clark Pinnock. It's a collection of essays by various writers. And in this book, they suggest that there is, if, if there exists an idea of what God would do, the uh, counterfactual opposite is not that which God would, what, 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 that which would not happen, but rather what might, the existence okay. of might. And therefore, uh, it con- proposes a construction of possible foreknowledge in which God knows the entirety of history like a choose-your-adventure novel. Mm -hmm. He knows where all the trails go, but he does not necessarily know exactly what every choice would be, only what every choice might be, and what might be the consequences of those said choices. You keep rubbing up against it, so I'm going to bring it up now. All of these are kind of butting up against this, uh, you mentioned sort of infinite foreknowledge, what about, or infinite futures. Uh, The infinite present, I'm very interested in the idea is that all of these things are going to happen in some version of... Oh, like the multiverse Yeah, exactly. Yeah, have... that the have is happening has happened will happen yeah so it, yeah infinite uh just infiniteness of the universe all things are bound to occur eventually so there's no friendliness to this at all within the calvinistic streams oh, yeah, and, and yeah. there isn't really even much of that in uh the classical sort of theism of a molinism molinism mm-hmm. but within open theism they do occasionally play with sort of quantum theory in that kind of gotcha. way uh but typically they do not yeah i was curious if anybody had gotten there. yeah that because that that gets to be something far too special speculative and the uh, biblical record is silent on that and so therefore they tend not to not an idea we were playing with six thousand years ago yeah yeah yeah. so therefore it doesn't really find its way into those theological formulations although that does exist within the realm of possibility again which is uh possibility being the huge factor uh within open theism and so wrestling with those different questions and then asking the question does foreknowledge in itself 
provide a way towards uh, something more like a classical theism in which it makes free will possible, uh, perhaps rehabilitating the idea of Calvin, but uh, also thinking about the way in which Molina, Molina has constructed that in the uh, 19th or the 15th century, and then how these 20th century uh, theologians, uh, 20 to 21st century theologians, have constructed this openness of God kind of theology as well, all of which are playing with the idea of what is foreknowledge, and does foreknowledge make it make free will impossible? Right. Or does it make it moot as a point? So all of those big theological debates as a discussion using Minority Report as a primary text. There you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer. I believe now it is indeed the time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. Yes, indeed, dear listener, and that business is, as always, analysis. Did Tom Cruise kill Leo Crow? Yes or no? No. No. I mean, in the movie, he doesn't. No. No. He still ends up dead. It it looks like... But would Leo Crow have ended up dead if Tom Cruise hadn't gone to that apartment? I say, yes, he did still kill Leo Crow because he couldn't leave well enough alone. Would you have broken that plate of that pot of cookies if I hadn't said something about it? There you have it, right? Uh, That's what's really going to bake your noodle later on, baby. Which is the big (laughs) wood, right? Uh, so yeah, I, what, do we want to do with the free will thing now? Yes, I, why not? Okay, well, that's I, a great I segue. Well, and we're, you know, we've already talked about different realities and possibilities. Like this is I've, this is deep esoteric Philip K. Lore, uh, Philip K. Dick lore. Uh, but my man believed in the multiverse uh, and, and some variation of sim theory. You can find the the what's his doodle that made Room Two Three Seven had that movie last year, uh, Glitch in the Matrix, and mm-hmm. they play some of the the notable Philip K. Dick recordings at this. I you know this meeting or symposium or whatever that he was at where he was talking about some of his weirder ideas going full crazy uncle mode uh but yeah i mean this this guy believed that you know there was a reality where nazis won and so on and so forth he he, man in the high tower was not just a story to philip k dick he took it very seriously you know what's interesting about or high castle the uh the film itself is the way in which it formally plays with time Mm -hmm. which might be a good way into some of this and so when you think about the precognitions of the future they are fractured they are uh again stylistically very very uh hyper uh idiosyncratic as uh spielberg designs those scenes that the precogs are seeing cutting to the precogs right the, speaking or vocalizing what they're uh hallucinating i guess or right and uh, seeing and it's mediated through uh these screens uh mm-hmm. that it's come through but it's very very cut up very very high montage kind of styling as opposed to the film's use of memory itself with recordings the movies. which the home movies yeah. themselves are somewhat distorted as memory is but they are smoother and clearer because as we know memory is always a construct that we are creating. We are remembering our memories and always uh, shaping those memories as we move our way forward, as opposed to the film itself, which is, I guess, ostensibly the present, which is smooth Mm -hmm. with uh, clinical sort of uh, continuity editing as it moves on forward. And so there's a way in which the present is kind of all that which actually exists, and the past does not exist, the future does not yet exist, although it is potentiality, which lends itself very much to an open theist kind of understanding of uh, possible freedom and uh, the possibility of freedom. Well, I definitely don't think it's a Calvinist movie, right? Because, uh, which, thank God, because who needs it, uh, is what I say. I'm allowed to say those things on this show. Uh, Because a Sidehouse character uh, doesn't 
go through with the murder right. that he's mm-hmm. been predicted to do. He kills himself, which is very much not what he was predicted to do. So it definitely uh, definitively comes down, even with the Leo Crow scene, right? Leo Crow still dying, even though Tom Cruise chose not to do the murder. He still dies. And the end of the film, we have something actually very different happen from what's been predicted. So it definitely comes down on the side of like, there is determinism of some kind. Yeah. And I know there is, there is not, there's not determinism. And I think part of the philosophical question is the question of illusory free will and choice. If Mm. I have foreknown from the foundations of the earth that Dalton is going to have a scrambled egg sandwich for breakfast on Tuesday morning, then indeed Dalton has the option of the, the Kellogg's variety pack, a burrito or a scrambled egg sandwich. But if I've known from eternity, past that as a case does he really have a choice and what happens if i do eat a scrambled egg sandwich for breakfast on tuesday it means that i have exhaustive definite foreknowledge or you just incepted you i will be taking a picture of my breakfast and sending it to (laughs) dustin on tuesday but by saying those things and again sort of by enunciating those prophecies there's a way in which we are influencing the flow of future sure but also the idea if it's definitely known what you will do then you're not really free to make those choices. And so is Max Monsidao free to kill Tom Cruise when it's precognitional or has he always had a choice? That is really the question. Just because this is the pattern in the road that you're on, there's always new information coming in, and the only thing which actually does exist is the person in the present. Is this now? Well, is, they, way, is that that's is it now? That's that's the Smith right. line. Ooh, well, chills. They, they also just throw they, they, they throw in the wrench that that he like both uh, Tom Cruise and Max von Sydow know the outcome, whereas most mm. other people didn't know the future. So they didn't, they weren't making a conscious choice as much as they were just going along with what had been predicted versus these two who have foreknowledge. So like, at what point does the foreknowledge also shape the outcome in the future? In the Correct. Choice? Yeah. And again, it seems that Dick runs in his, in his slightly interestingly counterintuitive position where foreknowledge actually, it results in freedom of the will as opposed to the classical way in which philosophers have shaped this, that foreknowledge precludes the possibility of free will. Yeah, I mean... Make that style, you know? Well, I was going to say, even further back, Oedipus Rex, right? Like, the, the chasing of the knowledge is what's going to cause you to go down that road, right? Right. Whereas, yeah, we would get a very different uh, situation here. Did anybody uh, read Minority Report, the short story? I have not. I have I've, not either. I've read it, but it's been okay. almost a decade. Yeah. I've th- I've, I assume it's quite different. I mean, obviously, there's I, yeah, two I, and a half hour movie well, built out from it. Anderton's the director of mm. the, the thing. Gotcha. And I think in the end, he may kill himself. Ah. But I can't remember gotcha. for sure. I, well, I haven't read it, but I was reading Spielberg's interview and he claims that like the it's a, he's like the first third is very Philip K. Dick. The second and third is not. Yeah, like, yeah, it he, makes sense. This uh, is a me movie. Yeah, yeah, and I think Whitworth play. I get my understanding is Whitworth plays a fundamentally different role in the novel versus the gotcha. Film. I do. Yeah, I wanna, think Whitmer's his friend. Ah, okay. Really, I want to point out a moment of predictive foreknowledge in the film is when Max von Sydow is awarded that uh, very very dainty Civil War pistol. Mm. Um, there was a moment I'm watching the movie and I go, he is going to kill himself with that gun. That is what's going to happen because you always use dainty pistols for villainous characters to kill themselves. Interesting. And uh, so I had a, a moment of divine foreknowledge, perhaps because of just movie lore and its tropes. But typically, well, that's what happens. The irony of uh, I hope we live in a world where we never have to to use in the firearm. He within an hour uses the firearm. Right. Yeah. Chekhov's yeah, yeah. Uh, gold plated pistol. It is fun though <laughs> that the technology of pre crime makes it impossible for the cops to use lethal weapons. They have to use less than lethal oh, weapons. Yeah, so precogs aren't 
screeching constantly. constantly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right on. Yeah. Yeah, those like airwave guns. The airwave gun is shock so cool. Six sticks. Six sticks. Six sticks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the image of the guy projectile vomiting on another person wearing a jetpack is. Mwah, pink Spielberg. It, it, yeah, it's very great. Uh, very, very cool. Uh, I was thinking about this movie as a film noir and as an investigation, sure. and it does have its interesting homages. I'm thinking especially about a scene that would probably otherwise get neglected, which is where we find out that there are these minority reports. Mm-hmm. These uh, reports in which uh, Agatha sees a possible future that the other twins do not see mm-hmm. in that glass hothouse. I mean, it's very much meeting the general, the colonel, whatever his title is, yeah. in the big sleep. And she, uh, Hanneman, is that her name? I yeah, Lois yeah. something or other. An actor I've seen in a bunch of stuff. Yeah. She's, a, yeah, she's great. She's great. And is, I think, up there with Tim Blake Nelson and Peter Stormare as far as like having a really dialed in, you know, one to two scene performance. Like, I think all of the sort of bit performances in, in this movie are calibrated just a little bit differently than the main cast. And it, it does make every one of these moments feel like this, this kind of mythical journey because you're meeting these such like big characters absolutely and i think this is where uh, spielberg's postmodernism really comes into into the foray because again we know his references to kubrick and we know his references to louis bunuel we've already talked about them here we have this film noir reference to uh, the big sleep starred uh directed by howard hawks right yeah sure um because uh, houston does the maltese Falcon. yeah right yeah. okay so hawks houston h's I get, uh, yeah totally get confused anyway so we see him doing that, and then he's also interestingly self-referential and parroting. I'm thinking about his use of John Williams and the way in which the score gets that sort of, I don't know if you guys noticed it or not, but that little whimsical, like, fun, caper kind of music that he uses sometimes mm-hmm. when, uh, uh, again, when you're, like, at the moment where we're going to uh, find an explorer and there's going to be some high hijinks going on as the spiders are crawling around that particular apartment. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so he gets weirdly, I mean, it, it felt very much like a moment from Back to the Future almost, more mm-hmm. than it felt like a... From a Spielberg, but nonetheless, that is an interesting way in which uh, the self-referentiality ref- of the film becomes high. Well, I mean, obviously, I think the, the premise itself is uh, very much a Hitchcock movie. Right, you know I mean? totally. man on the run, the wrong man mm-hmm. thing is. And as you mentioned, thirty nine steps and North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. And Dalton mentioned the 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 car assembly scene being uh, yeah, lifted a from the Hitchcock thing. idea. Yeah. Uh, here's something that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, th- this is just kind of a throwaway moment, but I love the implications of it. Uh, there's the tour guide. We've kind of mentioned this, this sort of very effective exposition. The tour guide is lying about what it's like to be a precog. Mm-hmm. Nobody is being told the truth about what it is like to be a precog. There is an inherent dishonesty in the pre-crime system, and it is, you know, the whole thing's rotten to its core, right? It is, it is built upon a lie that these people are being treated like people. They you they even say as a Tom Cruise has line right. It's easier if you don't think of them as people. Right. Pretty messed up, man. Something fundamentally dehumanizing about being in law enforcement is that part of the suggestion there? Well, it's you know not even dehumanizing, but I mean, there's the the moment where his colleagues say we're more like clergy than cops now, and and that it's a deification, right? The, it, it is the whole system an elevating of themselves above the populace that we you know see so much of in certain media not just media depictions of the cops but how they talk about themselves sometimes i gotta say i was very amused that colin farrell went to fuller seminary this is very good i'm sure you loved that i appreciated that very much i like the the slip in that his dad was from dublin just in case you know anytime he slips up on the accent they've got they've got they got (laughs) got got easy out for a little bit of irishness there yeah yeah it's good movie making but uh, yeah i just i don't know i like the idea that uh pre-crime is is rotten to the core yes uh, i think there's something very interesting there the, the the inherent premise is actually a paradox within itself you know the, the fact that like 
the movie points it out by the end. Mm-hmm. Like the only way for this to work is for you to, to get your hands dirty. Otherwise, this whole thing falls apart yeah. immediately. Yeah, um, you have to be you have to do a, a morally gray thing, at best gray thing, to even set up the system, which is steal these children of drug addicts and uh, hook them up to a bunch of drugs and use them as computers. Right. It's it's a very gross thing that it posits. Yeah, and it, it, again, the, the iconography very much uh, shares a lot of a DNA with the Matrix as well, mm-hmm. you know, for that. So oh, they're yeah. powering their system. I want to go back to what you said, though, about that moment of exposition with the tour guide, mm-hmm. uh, because it's really not unlike the idea of, let's say, the army putting a uh, Super Bowl ad that looks like an action movie mm-hmm. or uh, you mm-hmm. know, that it's a fantasy adventure or that... Uh, Air Force ads especially yeah. are guilty of this. Yeah. Or that you're going to be Tom Gunn, uh, Tom uh, Tom Cruise jumping in an airplane pilot and scaring yeah. Kelly McGillis. It's not the uh, the recruiter yeah. from Starship Troopers saying, ah, the mobile infantry made me the man I am today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A quadruple amputee. Yeah, this idea of the uh, the government propaganda selling something that it's not. Yeah. yeah. yeah you know, it's, like, like Call of Duty. It's, it's great. Yeah. It's super easy. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, yeah XP yeah, and kill some zombies. You're cool. Yeah, 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 dog. You like XP up. Yep, for sure. I'll get faster <laughs> ADS. Spend five bucks on this uh, new gun. <laughs> that, well, you know, in every conversation I've ever had with a non-commissioned officer in the U.S. Armed Forces is about how cool it is when you get to unlock the gold-plated pistol. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you got you to get a lot of XP for that unlock. Yeah, that's right. Do they just love trekking across the uh, the Middle East looking for uh, loot crates? <laughs> <laughs> they do indeed. Uh, All right. Uh, other big thematic thoughts. Um, I've already alluded to the fact that not alluded to, just talked about Leo Crow still dying, and it mm. does sort of the the film gets to have its cake and eat it too, as far as you know determinism goes. Right? Is this this idea that you know we'll make our choices, but the universe does end up being beyond our control no matter what we do. Right? Tom Cruise can decide to go uh, super cop mode and read the man his, that he thinks killed his son his rights, and it's boy is that a great scene? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. The dude still dies, and the the conspiracy against tom cruise still effectively ends up working he just has a, a backup plan that gets him out of it right so it's, it is sort of interesting the way i don't know i don't know if i have any big thoughts about it I just kind of want to bring it to the table well i mean seed out goes the different route because the precognition is that he murders uh ethan hunt uh as a... <laughs> <laughs> this is actually mission impossible nine yeah. right yeah. uh he does go ahead and, and uh uh but he doesn't go ahead and shoot him he shoots himself and so that is a way in which that that possible future is totally broken down mm-hmm. so but those choices again the possibilities are still pretty closely linked i think there if, if you're thinking mm. the choose your adventure novel mm. uh, kind of idea of going down that different stream there's a lot of other factors that are at work still that might impinge that somebody's going to die mm. and so even though uh the reason why leo crow is there is because he's being paid and he's going to get paid off for getting murdered murdered uh by him having his family taken care of which is clearly not going to happen yeah you know now because they're not going to get away with it well i think that's the idea that we kind of get about the precogs with the minority report is that it's not a drastically different future it's just slightly altered and that's Mm -hmm. how sidal even gets away with the crime to begin with is that it was similar enough to right the the echo echo, yeah yeah being mistaken for the, the original crime yeah the uh, we have a, a trope rear its head that we've talked about recently the uh, the Fed versus the local cop mm-hmm. we haven't had had 
that much lately, but I know we've talked about it before, at yeah. least fairly recently. Uh, it, it is interesting that he turns out to be on his side. Uh, yes. I think it's a fun... In the, the way the movie keeps you on your toes about Danny Whitworth's allegiances is pretty interesting. Yeah, I think that character's just really well played out, and I think Farrell does a great job of... He's not, you know, he's obviously he's kind of swinging his weight, but he's also does seem to be there to be as efficient as possible. Yeah. Playing he's brash, no biases. arrogant, and confident, but he's also after the truth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. yeah it, at the end of the day, he, yeah, he is a truth seeker. He wants to figure out, does the system really work or is there something wrong? I, he, and he's got, is there something wrong? Again, it seems like he plays like a really good detective. He's a little too coffee, cocky for his own good. Right. Again, well played. Yeah. Everybody can't wait to go tell the one person they shouldn't tell about their discoveries. Right. <laughs> They just can't wait to get in line to tell Max von Sydow the secret thing they learned. <laughs> I do find it interesting that the movie goes ahead and uses drug addiction as a way to superpowers. I mean, that's mm. strange to me. I don't know if there's an analytical foothold there to be had. But the, the, What is the, the superpower that it posits Tom Cruise has? Is it the running? Well, no, the superpower that the precogs have. Oh, because yeah. uh, their yeah. parents are neuro, neuroin, neuroin in, which yeah. is, I guess, vaguely heroin. Yeah, brain but, damage as superpower. Right. Yeah, some pretty standard uh, gross ableism for movies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but that's the the happy ending for the precogs. While well, I've kind of poo pooed the super mega happy ending, it it is it feels nice, right? You want the precogs to get out of this situation uh, because it is so dehumanizing, even uh, just like without really exploring it, it is uh, on its face a bad system. Uh, and I think the film does a good job of never letting the temple and big fat air quotes feel like a good place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just gonna say because the movie really does a good job. I think like. Y- is it superpowers? Yeah, but it's not by their choice. So really, I wouldn't even consider it a superpower. It's more like they're victims of mm, their yeah, parents' choices they're, they're or things. To bear, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if, and I'd have to again read the short story because if it's in the original, I mean, it feels like it's just an echo of MK Ultra, right? I mean, that's the mm-hmm. whole premise behind MK Ultra, yeah, right? Is absolutely. let's give these people drugs and see if we can unlock their mind to yeah otherworldly possibilities. I mean, how can we so like, weaponize I, not, the human mind? Which that may just be kind of what this is an echo of in Phillips and Dick's original story. Yeah. Too. And, and coming to the Dick tropes and uh, mm. thinking about what he's uh, doing. Uh-huh. No, gosh, I was not doing that. <laughs> I was not doing that. It's okay. But I was thinking a lot about Total Recall. Sure. And how the film ends in a way in which we are uncertain whether or not um, Schwarzenegger is uh, experiencing uh, really just his sort of uh, paranoid delusion of being a, a savior kind of uh, situation, or if it really is a real thing, you know, and kiss me quick before you wake up, it's the last line in the movie, and it fades to white. We have no idea uh, whether or not that's just the last of his neurons firing. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson says to Tom Cruise that in the slam here, in the halo, all your dreams come true. Is not his dream of truth willing out and writing out, does the film actually end that way, or is it simply just the uh, neuron fantasy of Tom Cruise's character? Yeah, yeah. That's realities are bring up earlier because i'd watched the video that was po- made it posit that this is a common reading of the film is that it is a dream oh okay yeah rather than actually taking place which i hadn't considered watching the movie but i mean i guess i could see in a in a rewatch but it, it's definitely a well that dick films go to so yeah it's definitely i guess because of how clean it is mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. happy it is how I well mean, it resolves itself. It even makes sense just with it, not even just his screen adaptations, but like uh, his short stories, which I mostly know from uh, the Philip K. Dick's Do Android uh, Electric Dreams, the, mm-hmm. the Amazon series. But at least two, I think at least two of those short stories like deal with uh, the unknowability of your reality and, and choosing a, a 
potentially more exciting reality or more fulfilling reality over the real what seems like the real one mm-hmm. um so yeah i yeah i i don't normally like fan like that kind of fan theory type speculation uh, you know sort of finding something that doesn't actually exist within the text but you know it can be fun well i think i think you could read it yeah from there yeah well, if you i mean the way it pointed out through the video i mean yeah because of this because of the way it breaks it's the way they pointed out is the way that it breaks from the the traditional narrative Spielberg's using to move heavy into that voiceover mm. for that period of time. Mm. Just the cleanliness of her being able to find the eyeball. Yeah, him and his ex-wife get back together. Now they're having yeah. another baby. And the ideal dream. Yeah, he's restored his family. Yeah, and yeah. so I mean, it's, I think it's yeah. plausible enough that it is there, but I don't know that that's the first place I would go. It's not as obvious that that's supposed to be the question, as, say, like Inception. Yeah, you know, where they yep. clearly want you to ponder yep. that question, right? Yeah. Uh, I, this becomes a much darker movie, though, if that is the ending. Absolutely, uh, oh, Brazil, yeah. Br- great companion to Brazil, right there. <laughs> totally. uh, the uh, the actual director's cut of Brazil, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, freedom versus security, sort of the, right. the the biggie on the eye chart here. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't know that this is more interesting than other films from the the same era that ask that question, right? Because that, that does become the hot question of the day for sort of the the the. Mo- the glut of pop culture that surrounds the war on terror so much of it does address these questions of freedom and security and how does a state function uh and uh, without uh, gross human rights abuses <laughs> how yeah. how does it uh, protect itself right yeah. and what does that what is it actually protecting uh, i don't know that we get any big answers here you know it is sort of just kind of uh, it gets into it less than the, some of its other themes i feel like mm-hmm. Less than it could. Right. Yeah. It, it definitely feels like the Spielberg's way of working out post 9-11 by asking the larger philosophical questions and setting it in a sci-fi future versus mm-hmm. a present-day future. Well, and Munich feels yeah. so much yeah. more like his 9-11 movie, definitely. right? right. Yeah, this is more direct. Yeah, the bigger thing here is, is it ethical to put people on watch lists? It's yeah. kind of that question. Thought right? crime, our thought crime yeah. is valid. Yeah. You know, yeah. to, to well, and that is what they, uh, they say, right? Everybody who is convicted of a pre-crime got released but they do uh, have tight government surveillance on them is, yeah. is the uh the quote-unquote happy ending yeah, yeah. <laughs> caleb do you have any well I, I actually wanted to uh talk a little bit about the future in the tech just because i think it's interesting oh uh, yeah so, yeah so yeah. uh firstly i just have to, to to posit yes this is not a happy future but <laughs> currently i was like you know if this is the future we end up with it could be a lot worse <laughs> it's, it's not not good but you know that's this 2022 for you well uh i just want to know that spielberg actually invested a considerable amount of resources into building a quote-unquote like accurate future i heard about this he had like they, a whole think tank for the whole future tech. think tank he oh, like brought cool. in like uh so i didn't get all the names but it was like he brought in the world's leaders like technologists he brought in like people from architects from mit yeah. and they had like a whole like two-week workshop where they talked about well here's where the trends are going and here's what's happening yeah. just a futurism think tank mm-hmm. that's yeah. fun exactly and it's crazy they were able to budget that for the movie it's kind of awesome it's only spielberg baby yeah. <laughs> exactly right right um but yeah i think i think as i mentioned like a joke at the top of the show though i think the the way that they realized the technology is a little goofy but it's crazy how accurate a lot of it was uh, the idea that basically there is no more privacy mm-hmm. uh, the fact that you walk into a store they're going to serve you ads you targeted know? ads yeah mm-hmm. and, and they were talking about that in 2002 which you know the average person seemed wild I mean, yeah pre-social media I mean, mm. we haven't even got Facebook, the, the facebook yet i don't think yeah no at stanford no. or even my or even myspace yeah yeah all these things are not so, yeah, yet to come targeted about. Targeted ads. I thought, you know, you mentioned the the changing newspaper mm-hmm. thing, but, you know, when he's running and we see kind of those 
that 24-7 news cycle on the walls mm-hmm. of the, the mm-hmm. city, that reminded me almost more of just the constant envelopment we have with news through social media. Yeah. It's just like wherever I go, in my car, down the street, to work, where you know, to the store, pull out my phone, there's a news blast, a CNN you know, notification or I open Facebook and there's some new headline. Well, can you believe a world in which the billboards are actually tailored to you and what you actually see is the different billboard based on your interests or preferences? Probably can't be that far off. Yeah, yeah. We, we can't be. I've, I've watched The Social Dilemma a few times yeah, yeah. and I know the way this is going. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and I, I think that's what I really do admire about this because obviously I don't think, I don't know how much of that it was in Dick's original story because it's not a full novel. It's just a short story. Um, but again, it is that idea, you know, bringing in this think tank to see, you know, what are the possibilities? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the great thing about science fiction. I think that's what this movie, one of the things this movie does really well is that incorporation of technology and incorporation of foresight and, um, foreshadowing. And again, we kind of have to, I think, wrestle with the idea of science fiction and the self-fulfilling prophecy where somebody watches this and be like, you know, it'd be a great idea. Targeted ads, you know, and so <laughs> right. I, I think that's also an interesting it's a dynamic. determinism at work almost, right? But, I mean, we got self-driving cars, which I mean, that's not yeah. a new sci-fi thing here, but I mean, still with the Tesla, that, that it, kind of clean, slick body shape that we see on that Lexus. A lot of similarities. No, I was just going to say, like, like all of it feels very, other than a few of the little weird realizations, like everything feels like it's tracking pretty consistently with the trajectory we're on now, even though, you know, 20 years ago, we couldn't see that that's where we were going. It's really impressive. The Super Mario Brothers uh, interstate is a fascinating choice. I was just about that to say waterfall yeah. of cars. Is, no matter how cool. ma- no matter how many lanes of traffic you lanes of traffic you add, there's just going to be more traffic. Yeah, it never <laughs> fixes itself. <laughs> it also causes a future where everybody can afford a car. I guess with that uh-huh. scenario. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, which is yeah wild. Because yeah, where are the traditional vehicles? I mean, it's only like 2054. That's only like 30 years from now. I mean, obviously our auto human driving cars that do not attach themselves to waterfall roads would still be on the highways i would think yeah uh guys i'll just say <laughs> uh, working i've worked in marketing for a few years it's terrifying how close they can get with everything where you're at at any point in the day yeah. what what was the mood you were in when you last looked yeah. at this ad so we're going to serve you this ad wait well, it's it's insane like, yeah it's terrifying in the fact that we're what 30 years off from where the movie's at i feel like we're gonna get there a lot faster well yeah at least from the advertising yeah if if not already there yoinks we are living in the darkest timeline and with that i think it's time to render a verdict on minority report the darkest film of i don't know (laughs) so with that um i go to you first guest of the show mr caleb masters what say you shelf or trash for minority report i I mean i I can't hide it i already talked about how much i love the movie (laughs) this is shelf i think i bought this movie three times probably in total um i i actually looked I was I was considering buying it on 4K. Alas, it's not out on 4K yet. So, um, you know. I isn't that? I thought it was. I couldn't for some find reason. it. I couldn't find it on Amazon. I thought they'd made that release. And I figured you had it. Maybe but. it's a physical release only. It was not on Apple or Amazon. Gotcha. Yeah. So I feel like that. Yeah. Check that out. And see. Alas and alack. All right. Well, with that, Dalton, what say you? Shelf or trash? Hmm. I am going to very very gently place this on the shelf. Uh, it's only because I was so mean to the Ready Player One the last time we talked about a Spielberg <laughs> movie. I like this. I think this is very fun. I think it's, it's aged incredibly well. And, I, I you know, I, I think it it moves at such a good clip. It's got so much weird to it. It, it really does feel like a, a sort of... Uh, there, there's there's some fat in Spielberg's, filmog- Spielberg's filmography, and I feel like this is not 
this this is definitely a gem, mm-hmm. and I think it's worth revisiting. And it's worth uh, preserving for the historical record. Very good, very good. What do you say, Arthur? You know, I, I had to put it on the shelf for the purposes of watching it for the show, and I'm not mad about that. So I think I would put it on the shelf. I, I, again, I, I like where it is as a fi- sci-fi film. I, I like where it is in Spielberg's filmography. Um, and I think it's just a solid piece of work. So, yeah. Um, I also am going to say shelf because I think it's more accessible and more successful. No, seriously. Um, is, this, ver- is this way? Are we having a question of predeterminism here? <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah, because certain. I foreknew the future. I now had an option to pick otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> because Dustin knew what we thought he would pick. No, because, I mean, the movies I would think I would use alongside it in my syllabus would be movies like Primer or like Alex Proyas's Knowing starring Nick Cage. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I think that this is a neater, more accessible version of those same kind of ideas. Sure. And so if I were going to teach that course, I might use bits of primer and talk about it. I might use bits of knowing and talking about it. But I think it's 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 more it's got more utility mm. for that. Mm. Uh, and the, the philosophical question. And it is just generally uh more rock'em sock'em fun and accessible uh for that reason. And so for pedagogical purposes I find it more handy for that. Though is it my favorite movie of all time? No, I like it, but no, I wouldn't I don't think I'd watch it much, but I just want to have it. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. totally. so it's, it's a very yeah. gentle shelf as well. It's respectful. All right, there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got again much, much longer. Um, Dalton, tell the dear listener how they can be part of the conversation. Oh, before with Dalton, I, I, got, I got, I got it. Oh, I, got, I still got it. Okay. Yeah, uh, I know. Okay, you want to do the thing? Okay. Yeah, I got okay. it. Oh, do that thing. I'm on it. Right. I, I know. I know what my this job is. First rodeo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put on my my, my stirrups or whatever. I meant chaps. I meant chaps. You're fired. Yeah, shit. Uh, Are you wearing well, pants with the chaps? That's what I want yeah, to know. Well, no, God, no. Okay. Well, before I uh, take my uh, my severance pay from Arthur, I'll let you know that if you want to continue this conversation, you can find us wherever you want, mostly on Twitter. <laughs> At Good Trash Media. Dalton's going to be at the Applebee's on 23rd after this. <laughs> uh, that's right. At Good Trash Media on Twitter. We're a pretty good follow, but look, if you're not already on that terrible website, there's no reason to do that to yourself. Uh, if you want to send us long form feedback, you can find us at GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail.com. That's the name of the show you're listening to at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed listening to our guest host, Caleb, you can find his work over at TheCinematropolis.com and his website, The Cinematic schematic is available on all the podcatchers caleb do you do you, do you care about people following you personally i you mean twi- I don't like, know you, like, like you said uh, my twitter handle is at c masters talk uh but if you're not on twitter don't don't get on twitter just, yeah, just don't do don't. that to yourself don't, in fact if you're if you're on twitter use it less i encourage you yeah but That's you go fair. check out the cinematic schematic uh, arthur and i have both been on uh, quite a few times recently so yeah you can go check that out uh, if, if that's an easy in for you well yeah you had uh we had, we had arthur on the most popular movie of a long time uh spider-man no way home i got to talk about the spiders men mm. why did you how did you feel about the spiders men i uh, i read you your letterbox you should go listen to the cinematic schematic and find out there how i felt go. about the spiders men well played and well if played. they found their way home or not well then uh dalton we had you talking about the Homer resurrections uh, of the matrix you know what and it did end up making I, i've locked in my top 10 for 2021 it made the uh, the bonus list it made the honorable mentions uh, yeah i like me some matrix resurrections you can go listen to people to win god we did what three hours on the original trilogy uh, that I cut down to two, but it was, in fact, three hours almost. Yeah, we had a good yeah. talk. Two of those were Dalton. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's I, I like to give people options. <laughs> they can cut around me. Okay, well, Not thank you easy. very much for that, Dalton. Arthur, are we going to do another movie? Oh, I suppose we can. Uh, who's picking it? Uh, well, that's the fun thing about this, because next week we have a uh, favor called in from our good friend and Patreon, one Mr. Keith and Smith. Ah, that's and right. we all know what that entails. That means we're doing a foreign movie. Well, yes, we are. Yeah. We're also doing a movie from 1997. 
We're also doing a horror film. Is it audition? No. Okay. We're also doing a Japanese film. Well, I, uh, there goes my audition. Oh, is it 99? Next week, we're taking a look at Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure. Oh, sure. okay. I don't yeah. know about this one. I, I ran across this movie when I was doing my uh, eco cinema course. So interesting. I haven't seen it yet. Well, if you want to make us pick a movie, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM to find out how to do that. But I can't wait to, to watch Keithan's pick, Cure, from 1997. All right. Yeah, I think it's on the Criterion uh, Network that or makes channel, sense. whatever it's called. Well, thanks again, Caleb, for coming on the show. And thanks again, dear listener, for listening in. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>